We're going to begin in verse 10. It's where we really left off last Sunday. But if we were to just start with verse 10 and you weren't with us last Sunday, you would be a little confused as to what's going on. So we're going to kind of backtrack all the way up to verse 1. We're just going to get a running head start into the text that we'll spend the majority of our time in this morning. So John 5 verse 1, we read that after this there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast it was, but Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, which was on the northern side of the temple, was a pool, which in Hebrew is Bethesda, just north of the Sheep Gate, the northern section of the city. And this pool, John tells us, had five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down, John tells us, at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man who was there, who had an infirmity 38 years, so he was probably the wily veteran here at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus, we're told, sees him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. So Jesus said to the man, do you want to be made well? What an interesting question. One that speaks of desire. Do you want? Do you really want it? And the sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no man to put me into the water when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. The man replies, yes, I want it, but it's impossible. Who cares about what I want? My healing is improbable. But Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. Something that could never have been done by himself something that was completely unable to be accomplished in his own strength. The man didn't do his best to rise, didn't try his hardest, didn't muster whatever strength. Jesus said, rise, and what was impossible occurred. The word rise, as we examined last Sunday, carrying with it not just a directive, but the power for the directive. It's the same word we find used over and over and over again in the scriptures, referring to Jesus and the dead, causing the dead to rise. If you tell a dead person to rise, I promise you the dead person has no involvement in whatever happens next. Either he remains dead, or he comes to life, but both. He had no role in Yet Jesus says, rise, and the man was made well. And then the second and third directives were told that he was obedient in the sense that he took up his bed and he walked. And then John kind of closes this section with kind of some ominous words. He says, and that day was the Sabbath. Now in the Greek, what follows Sabbath is dun, dun, dun. Because this is loaded. This was a no-no. This would have repercussions. So we get to verse 10. John continues that the Jews, and this would be the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, therefore said to him who was cured, this man who for 38 years had an infirmity, 
and in one moment is now cured. They come to him, and this is the religious reaction to the miracle. They said to the man, it is the Sabbath, and you're breaking the law by carrying your bed. Now, now this word bed, it, it's not a queen mattress. It was more of a floor mat. The bed literally means pallet. So it's something that he rolled up, threw across his shoulder, and was off on his way. It was a no-no. So the man answers to this accusation of breaking the Sabbath law. He says, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Like his point is that the guy who cured me told me to do this, so why would I be arguing? But then they asked him, well, who is the man that said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. And this word withdrawn, it, it literally means to dodge. Like Jesus, knowing the environment around this pool, knowing all the sick, all the lame, all the disease, all those desiring a miracle, Jesus healing this one man, knowing that this mob, things would quickly get out of control. He, he retreats back into the shadows. He removes himself from the situation. Now that's interesting in and of itself. And we're going to push that entire larger discussion to next Sunday. But we continue that afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple. <laughs> For 38 years, the man, because of his infirmity, was forbidden from entering the temple. The closest he could get was the pool of Bethesda. For 38 years, he couldn't offer sacrifices to atone for sin. He couldn't pray. He couldn't worship. For 38 years, he's separated. And yet now, he's been healed. So where does he go? The most logical place to return. He goes to the temple. It's a great place for the man to go, for he's now permitted to worship. And so Jesus, he finds him there, and he says to him, See, you have been made well, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, this verse could be better translated as because you've been made well, sin no more. And, and, and in the tense behind this word sin, it's not that Jesus was telling him not to sin as an act. Because, hey, the man was going to sin again. We all sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The man was, was not going to be perfect moving forward. But in the tense, what Jesus is saying it's not, don't commit the act of sinning, but because you've been made well, don't go back to the lifestyle of sin that led you there. You've been freed from it, so don't return again. So the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well, and for this reason, the Jews were told, persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Uh, this is early in Jesus' ministry. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And that last concept, Jesus being equal with God, is something that he'll spend the rest of the chapter expounding upon uh, in a pretty lengthy sermon. Now, in order to get to understand, to kind of wrap your brain around this bizarre reaction by the Jewish leaders to this man's miraculous healing at the pool of Bethesda. It's, it's, it's genuinely a head scratcher. For 38 years, the man hasn't been able to walk. He's been at the pool of Bethesda. He's been stricken with this illness for 38 years. And then in, a, in an instant, in a moment, the man's healed. 
you would think the natural reaction would have been some type of like, hey man, that's awesome, some type of celebratory uh, reaction, and yet no, we get like just this bizarre reaction from the religious leaders. They don't care that he was healed, they want to know uh, who cured him because this was in violation of the Sabbath. Like, it's a bizarre reaction. So in order to understand the bizarre reaction, why this was the way they responded, and also to then kind of explain Jesus' response to their bizarro reaction, it's important for us to just take a minute, and I know this could get a little laborious, but I don't intend it to, but to, to understand it, why they would react this way, and then why Jesus would address it in the way that he did, you have to understand two much larger concepts that are at work behind the scenes. First, you have to address the, the question, what was God's intended purpose behind the Sabbath day? To understand their bizarre reaction, you have to take a moment to explain what the whole Sabbath day was about. And secondly, we have to then address the how and the why these first century Jewish leaders had so warped the Sabbath day into something that God had never intended it to be. I mean, really, what kind of crazy theology would cause a person to be more focused on rule-keeping than life transformation. We've all visited churches that had similar theology. Now, for starters, it's important to point out that the idea of the Sabbath, the concept, the framework, predated the law of Moses by thousands of years. In actuality, the Sabbath was first instituted by God in the creation narrative. In Genesis chapter 2, and if you want to flip there, you can. If you're following along on c316.tv, you'll have the scripture built in. But in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, this is what we're told. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. This is the end of the creation narrative. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work in which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, on the f this first seventh day of creation, we're told that two interesting things take place. First, after seeing and evaluating everything God had just spent the previous six days creating and then determining that it was indeed very good. This is Genesis 1 verse 31. And what it means by indeed it was good is that man's going to love all that he has created. That it was now on the seventh day that God ends his work and we're told rested. So this is the first thing that God does. On the seventh day, he ends his work and he rested. Now in the Hebrew, the word that we have translated as ended literally means that God's work was accomplished. According to Moses, God's creation of the heavens and the earth and all the host of them it was finished. It just took six days, which explains why then God rested on the seventh day. Now, the word rested does not imply that God was just bone tired. It doesn't tell us that after, after six days, man, God was pretty beat, pretty worn out, that God needed a little R&R &R and he needed to take a little, a little vacation. That's not what the word means. Instead, the word simply indicates the cessation or the stopping, of all that was happening beforehand. In the Hebrew, the word rested 
It's sabbat, which is the primitive root for the Hebrew word sabbat, which then if you translate into English is Sabbath. When we're told that God ended his work and rested, you could translate it that God ended his work and took a Sabbath. This is where we get the word Sabbath from. Now, since Genesis chapter 2 is the first mention of the Sabbath day of rest, and I won't bore you about kind of an, a, an important concept in Scripture called the law of first mention, that when something is first mentioned in Scripture, it kind of sets the trajectory by which you can understand it moving forward. This is the first mention of Sabbath, means it sets the trajectory for how we should understand it moving forward. But we should ask ourselves this question. Why would God end his work and cease creating? Had God run out of ideas? I mean, had God, you know, just thrown it all out there, exhausted his resources? Or had the purpose of his creation finally been reached? And obviously the answer lies in the latter. Because the climax, the crescendo, the whole point, the purpose behind all creation. You want to know why there are stars in the sky? For you to discover them and see them. Did you know why that there's fish that we, we discovered today in far reaches of the ocean? Because God wanted us to discover them so many years after the fact. Like every part of God's creation. It's why every day he says, man, it's good. Not that he did a good job, but that man would love it. It was good. Man's going to enjoy that. Man, that's going to knock their socks off. Watch planet Earth. It's rad, right? We live in a very creative, awesome, colorful planet. And then you get outside the universe, and we've got telescopes flying through outer space, sending us even more things that have been never seen before. God created for you to see them. Now, that blows my mind. So all of creation intended for man to enjoy it. And it reached this point that on the sixth day, God makes man. It's completed. The final brush stroke, it's good. And so he could cease from his work. There was nothing more to do. What this means is that this seventh day, and the number, numerology, number seven means completion. We have seven days to a week. It's a complete week. If you only have five days, it's not a full week. Seven. Seven's completion. The seventh day signified the consummation of creation, meaning it's now operating as designed with mankind enjoying not just creation, but also an open and uninterrupted relationship with the Creator. That's what the seventh day was about. God's work ceased on the seventh day because God's work was finished. God and man could now enjoy this perfect, beautiful, unencumbered relationship with one another. You see, rest for man was found in a relationship with God afforded how? By a work of God, not man. Man had no part in the process. Secondly, this explains why we're then told that God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. The second thing that kind of happens here. In the Hebrew, the word blessed is barak. It, it literally means to salute or to praise. As one commentator observed, blessed is a statement of goodwill as well as the condition that fulfills that goodwill. A better translation of God blessed would be that God favored. He preferred the seventh day. Understand, God favored the seventh day and therefore sanctified it. 
or he set that day apart from all others, was because it was the day that he was finally able to cease working and enjoy his work, man, and a relationship with him. In a sense, there was nothing more God needed to do for man to enjoy and experience the life God had created for him. Now keep in mind that while there is no mandate in Genesis 2 for man to cease from his work on the seventh day, you notice you didn't find that in the Genesis narrative, that's not the case when you get to the Levitical law, the next mention of the Sabbath. Not only does God later command man to cease from his work on the seventh day, Saturday, the Sabbath, but it's important to note that the premise for the directive, like why God even included it in the Ten Commandments, specifically tethered itself, you want to take a guess where? Back to Genesis chapter 2. You know, you have no mention of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of those guys taking a Sabbath. It's not in the rest of the Genesis narrative. It doesn't pop onto the scene until you get back to Exodus. Matter of fact, in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, Moses presents to Israel the following command from God. So here's the command. Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, note this, of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, that's all that's in them, and rested the seventh. Back to Genesis. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, made it holy. Now what's interesting to me about this passage is that in placing the command for the children of Israel to cease from working on the Sabbath into the context of the seventh day recorded in Genesis 2, the idea that's being presented, and, and don't miss this, the idea being presented is that the Sabbath day of rest actually has nothing to do with man's work, but was instead designed as a day to recognize the completion of God's work. That's why we go back to Genesis. That line, I mentioned it. The seventh day is the Sabbath of you, of man. No, it's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's his Sabbath, his seventh day. And to this point in Exodus 31, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, which is the purpose. You shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to whom? The Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant, a sign between me and the children of Israel, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Now, realize, the point of the Sabbath was this, twofold. One, the point of the Sabbath was to serve as a constant reminder that it was only through God's work that humanity had been initially and originally afforded a relationship with God on the seventh day. But secondly, the point of the Sabbath was that since our subsequent actions ruined that seventh day, 
ruin the relationship we had with God. It could only be through a reinstitution of God's work and by default, the end of his Sabbath, that that relationship could be restored. In a real and profound way, the Sabbath day was God's way of telling humanity like the, the whole point of, hey, take a day off. Don't do anything. What was it about? It was God's way of telling humanity, stop it. Don't do anything. Take a day off. Stop trying to fix a problem. Yes, you created, but only I can remedy. Man taking a day to cease from his work was what? Well, we're told in Exodus, it was a sign between God and man, that man would know what? That the Lord sanctifies you. This word sanctified, it means to be set apart or, or to be treated as though one is holy. By design, if you were to walk into ancient Israel, and this is before King David, I mean, right after they'd entered the land, times of the judges, whatnot. If you were to walk into ancient Israel, there's several things that would really stand out to you is odd. Like first, Israel was a kingdom, but you know what you wouldn't find? A king. That was bizarre. A kingdom without a king. Strange. Aside from that, you would have found a temple that they would go to worship. But you know what was missing? An idol. So you have a kingdom without a king and you have a temple without an idol. That's weird. But then also what would strike you as strange is that they have a whole day they don't work. They have a king, kingdom without a kingdom, a temple without an idol, and, and a day that they don't do anything. That's weird. The Sabbath day of rest, friend, was designed to set Israel apart from the rest of the world in a profound way. Like God goes so far as to even claim in Exodus 31 that the Sabbath intended to be a perpetual covenant between himself and Israel. Not Israel and himself, but himself and Israel. Why? For on the seventh day, he originally rested. The reality is that the Sabbath day intended to illustrate a concept that was so significant that whoever did any work and violated it was to be put to death. It's pretty serious. Now, what I find deeply interesting is that the seventh day, or God's Sabbath, when God rested from his work, the true Sabbath, the one the Levitical command hearkened back to, you know God's Sabbath, the real Sabbath, has only happened, by this point, one time in all of human history. When Jesus has this conversation with the religious leaders, there had only been one Sabbath when God rested on the original seventh day. You see, as a consequence of the fall, when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, thereby separating himself from this relationship with his creator, also ruining creation, what happened? What immediately happened? Well, the Bible tells us that God, he ends his rest. He ends his Sabbath. And he proceeds to busy himself with the work of redemption. C.H. McIntosh observes the seventh day, quote, showed forth the completeness of creation work. 
but creation work is marred. And the seventh day, rest, is interrupted. And thus, from the fall to the incarnation, God was working. From the incarnation to the cross, God the Son was working. And from Pentecost until now, God the Holy Ghost has been working. God had a Sabbath day. And then man messed it all up. So God ended his rest and busied himself with work. Work for you. You see, the seventh day was originally blessed and sanctified, and then later in the law was commanded that man cease from his work on the holy day because of what the Sabbath represented. The Sabbath intended to serve as a reminder to the Jewish people that the only way their relationship with God could be restored would not be through their work. That's why they were to stop working. But rather through the completion of a work of God. That's what the Sabbath was all about. You know, the big problem that Jesus had with the religious right in his day, these religious leaders, was the fact that they had twisted the Sabbath into being something it in no way represented. They had taken a command meant to recognize God's continual work and they had made it into a way that they could earn God's favor through their work and obedience. And the sad thing is the Sabbath was instituted to emphasize the opposite reality. That's how off they had gotten things. You see, rest, true rest, know this friend, true rest always comes through a work of God and never a work of man. In a way, the seventh day, what does it represent? The amazing, incredible grace of God. You see, rest, rest in the truest sense, can only be found in a relationship with your Creator. What Adam and Eve originally had in the garden that first Sabbath day, and yet, that relationship was tarnished by man's sin, effectively ending his rest as well as God's Sabbath. Man was commanded to take a day off to recognize that reality, that God was busy working and man needed to stop. Once again, the Sabbath day intended to illustrate that a relationship with God was only possible through the completed work of God. Thus, therefore, as a result, rest and this is what the Sabbath wanted you to know. Your rest can never be attained. It can never be earned. It can never be achieved. It can never be worked for. And instead must be something that's yielded through a work of God that brings about a restoration with God. Look again at what we find in John 5. Specifically, look at verse 16. We're told for this reason... The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them. So, so look at what Jesus says. He says, my father has been what? Working until now. And I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, make no mistake about it. But the two things that Jesus says to these religious leaders absolutely 100% offended them. This was not a very seeker-friendly message. It ticked off his audience. First, look, in, in this statement, 
What is Jesus saying? He's saying, he's pointing out that God has never taken a Sabbath day since the first, since the original seventh. Like, like, look what he says. You want to know about the Sabbath day? Wait a second. My father has been working until now. There's no Sabbath for God. God doesn't take time off. God's been working every day since the fall of man. God has been active. This plan of redemption, creating a way for the relationship he wants with man to be restored from the effects of man's sin. You see, in making this point, Jesus is intentionally poking a gigantic hole in their theological understanding of the Sabbath day. If it's such a big thing, why is God working on it? You see, his points, they were flat out wrong in how they saw the Sabbath and what they believed. On the Sabbath day, man ceased working not to earn God's favor, but to recognize that God's favor would come through God's continual work. Now, the second thing that really ticks off his audience is that you know, he says, my father has been working, and I have been working. Jesus is claiming to be God. Which then means that the Sabbath day, ceasing work, didn't apply to him. God has never taken a day off on the Sabbath. He's been working. And you know what? Since I'm God, guess what I'm going to do on the Sabbath? Exactly what my father's doing. I'm going to be working. My father has been working until now, so I have been working. You see, Jesus is healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. His point wasn't inconsistent with the Sabbath day, was it? In actuality, the work of Jesus as God, the work he performed in the man's life, apart from the man's work, the irony is that's exactly what the Sabbath day intended to illustrate. God yielding a work in man that man's work could never have yielded. What this man at the pool of Bethesda couldn't do through his own energy and his own efforts, his own work to accomplish, this complete healing, wholeness, restoration. Jesus was able through a work, through a word, to fulfill. Jesus commanded the man rise and immediately the man was made well. It wasn't a work that necessitated the man's involvement. It was a work done apart from his involvement. Now, the second overarching idea, concept, that kind of demands our attention to understand the nuances of this passage is how and why had these first century Jewish leaders so warped the Sabbath day into something God never intended it to be? If it's so clear what the Sabbath was all about, how, how did we get to this point, right? It's a logical question. The answer, by the way, is equally important. First, it's important to note that within the Levitical law, the concept behind the Sabbath transcended more than just taking a day off. Sure, the Sabbath, Saturday, was a day of rest, but the law also stipulated that the seventh year, the Jews were to allow the land to rest. The seventh year Sabbath. So yeah, every six days work, take the seventh day off, but work the land every six years and then on the seventh, let it rest. That was another condition, application of the Sabbath. Beyond that, there was what was known as the year of Jubilee, which occurred on, and follow me, on the seventh of seven years. So it was the 49th year. See, on the 49th year, there was this year of Jubilee and I won't bore you with all of it, 
But all kinds of really cool grace manifesting things took place on this day. If you were enslaved because you couldn't satisfy a debt, guess what happened on the year of Jubilee? That debt was wiped out apart from your involvement. Boom, totally reset. You had lost your land because of foolish decisions on the year of Jubilee, regardless of you being a moron. Reset button, hit, year of Jubilee, your land goes back to your family. Like awesome stuff happens. It's like a full reset for society. All grace, by the way. Frankly, though, throughout their long and checkered history, the Jewish people, if you know anything of the Old Testament, they weren't really the A-team. Like, they were spotty when it came to obeying these various Sabbaths. As a matter of fact, severe consequences manifested as a result of their failure to obey these Sabbaths. According to Jeremiah 25, 11, and then confirmed in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 18 through 21, because the people had failed to obey the seventh year Sabbath, you know, where every seventh year they were to let the land rest, because they hadn't obeyed that condition for 490 years, God brought in the Babylonian Empire, crushed them, and exiled them. You want to take a guess for how many years? 70 the number of Sabbaths that they had failed to recognize is the number of years they were in exile. Literally, in 2 Chronicles, God says, because you didn't allow the land to rest, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to kick you out of it so the land could rest. For all those years, you didn't obey me. Fast forward to Nehemiah 13. Now, what, that, what makes Nehemiah important is that within chronology of the books of history, Nehemiah closes, and the next thing to happen historically is John the Baptist. Like, this is what happens. Like, Nehemiah's chronology sets, leads up to, to Matthew's gospel. Now, there's other books, but they fill back in. Now, when Nehemiah comes onto the scene, the 70 years of Babylonian exile had been completed. The people had been allowed to return to the land. And yet, when they returned, Nehemiah, who's one of the leaders, is just... He comes to Jerusalem and he looks around at what's happening and his mind melts. I can't believe you people are so stupid. And here's why. The three things that they had done to lead to their judgment were the same three things they had come back and kept doing. In Nehemiah in chapter 13, he kind of gives this sermon and he addresses three things that had led to their ruin. He tells the people, first, maintain a high regard for the temple. Two, protect yourselves from marrying with the surrounding Gentile nations that worshiped idols. And three, for Pete's sake, man, keep the Sabbath day. I mean, it's really what Nehemiah says. These three things got you in trouble. You come back, you're doing the same thing again. Protect the temple, don't marry the nations, and keep the Sabbath day of all things. Nehemiah 13, verses 17 and 18, he says, Then I contended with the nobles of, Ju of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring disaster on us and on our city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This was a big deal. Now, what becomes fascinating? is that during the 400 years that followed Nehemiah's sermon, these 400 years that are kind of dark years, 
from Nehemiah to Matthew. The people taking Nehemiah's exhortation, so fearing judgment, they took it all seriously that they carried those three concepts to an extreme. Like, think about the issues that Jesus had with the religious leaders. Think about the three issues he's constantly battling them about. One was what? The temple. I mean, they were bent out of shape about the temple. Now, they had neglected the temple, gotten judged. Nehemiah says, take care of the temple. So they were going to do it to the point that 400 years into it, what were they doing? They cared more about the temple structure than worshiping the God within the temple. A point Jesus makes over and over and over again. Okay, don't marry the nations, right? So by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, what was one of the issues he had to deal with? They had taken the exhortation to not marry the Gentiles to the point that by 400 years later, they were not marrying the Gentiles, but they hated the Gentiles, wanted them to burn in hell, and had deep-seated bigotries and racism towards them. Not what God intended. But finally, what, what else existed? Because the people wanted to desperately obey the Sabbath, what had occurred over these 400 years, and that desire to obey, they had added to Scripture a massive amount of traditions. You see, while the law simply said not to work on the Sabbath, the religious leaders were like, well, because we want to make sure we don't break that, we really should define what God means by work. What is the definition of is, is? They're going to explain that. Now, I'm not going to bore you with example after example after example how this manifested. Just Google it. But our text does a good job illustrating how idiotic things had gotten, right? Like, consider that in light of a man who had been supernaturally healed, the religious leaders demonstrated more concern that the healing might have constituted work and therefore violated the Sabbath than celebrating the fact that a broken man had been transformed. That's how crazy it had gotten. Kind of missing the point, wouldn't you think? Now, how had a good desire to obey God, which is what it was, right? How had a good desire to obey God become so warped and misguided that religious people who should have known better end up acting in such a detestable way? This whole Sabbath warping, it originated with a good desire. We want to obey God. That judgment thing, that stunk. Don't want to go there again. Not really sure what work means. Can I take the mail out? But what if I'm a mailman? Now how do I get my mail? Like, I mean, they start like, I mean, just working through the nuances of it. Out of a desire to make sure they didn't disobey God. Follow? And yet, 400 years into it, they don't care a man's been healed because they're so concerned that his healing might have been work. And that's missing the forest through the trees. So how does this happen? And I think the answer to this is important because you know what? S such things happen in the church all the time. We take a, a, a good desire to obey and over time it becomes something it was never intended to be. You know, first, how these things happen is that it would seem the motivation for their obedience. So the motivation to obey was what? It was a fear of God and not a love for God. That's a problem. 
like knowing that it had been their disobedience that resulted in the judgment of God, their Babylonian captivity. The people feared making the same mistake, and yet their fear, you know what it produced? An even worse sin. Moralism. Obedience had become the mechanism to earn and maintain God's favor because they were afraid, as opposed to being the natural response of his favor, knowing they were loved. Like to this point uh, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Like, can we be honest for a minute that this is how the root of legalism develops in our own life? And I want to give you an example. You, you, you just pick from the hat. All kinds of examples apply, but, but this is one I found to be relevant. Let's say that in a season of rebellion, alcohol became a vice and with time yielded a judgment. You got a DUI. You ruined a relationship. Maybe you lost a job. And it's only natural that moving forward, you want to avoid drinking. Why? Because you don't want to experience the judgment again. And yet, if fear of judgment is your sole motivation for not drinking, do you know what happens? The act of abstaining from drinking with time grows to become a source of moral pride. What started as a fear of judgment eventually becomes a reason you believe God is pleased with you. God's favor becomes rooted in your performance as opposed to a manifestation of His grace apart from your performance. Pride in your ability to be obedient slowly supplants a full reliance upon Jesus' ability to transform. Have you ever noticed that people who have a, a past with a particular sin often end up becoming very legalistic about that very issue? You ever notice that? This is why it happens. Moral pride in the place of grace always leads to a holier-than-thou attitude, hands down. And sadly, and this is going to sound controversial, but in such a dynamic, that person was better off as a drunk. Let me explain what eventually results when fear, fear of and not love for God warps your obedience into a mechanism to either earn or maintain God's favor, as opposed to obedience being a natural response of God's love and his favor. Because I can think of no better illustration than this very passage. When this happens, the first thing that you see is scripture becomes supplemented with man-made traditions. Because obedience is based in fear of judgment, and become central to one's own sense of moral pride. Creating more rules to obey is only logical, right? If my favor with God and my sense of moral pride is based in my ability to obey, then man, I want as many rules. Matter of fact, I want rules that I create to obey. N not ones other people create for me, because I might not be good. But I will make a bunch of rules for myself so I can feel good about myself, so I can obey and God's good with me. But consider that while God said, 
not to work on the Sabbath in order to keep it holy, that wasn't enough for the religious leaders. And the fear that they might work on accident, they decided it would be best to define what God meant by work. And to do that, they added to Scripture all kinds of rules aimed at ensuring obedience. And while that seems innocent enough, here's the problem. It starts you down a very slippery slope. Point number two, and this is what makes adding to the Bible dangerous. Man-made traditions eventually twist the original intent of Scripture. That's a problem. And in the case of these Jews with time, their definitions for work, what had it really done? It had totally warped God's purpose for the Sabbath day, for the command. Not working on the Sabbath had become a religious work in and of itself, aimed at earning God's approval, and, no, and was no longer seen as a day to recognize God's work, aimed at providing one his approval. Traditions aimed at ensuring obedience, have you ever been around those? Had completely convoluted the purpose for God's word, for the Sabbath. Understand in verse 10, when the, relig- when the religious leaders tell the man that it's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath, or in verse 15, when they claim Jesus broke the Sabbath by healing the man, understand it's not God's word that, that either had broken. What had they broken? Non-biblical, non-scriptural, man-made traditions. That's what they had broken. What was designed to be a day that people could enjoy had become an unbearable burden. Legalism, friend, is notorious for taking a good principle and making it intolerable in practice. Third, when man-made traditions twist the intent of Scripture, God's love for people gets totally lost. You see that in the passage, don't you? Christian, any time that performance is the basis of moral pride instead of just Jesus alone, obedience to rules and traditions becomes more important than people. I mean, that's the basis of your, of, of your moralism. It's hard to, to justify the actions of these religious leaders. But you know, we're often guilty of the same thing. Let me give you another example. I think we can all agree that possessing a reverence for the Lord's a noble thing. Can't, can't we agree on that? A reverence for God is an important thing. And yet, you know, for generations, in our pursuit to be reverent, people weren't welcomed in the doors of church because they weren't wearing a suit and tie. Like, instead of joy that someone came to encounter the God of the universe... Christians in a desire to be reverent became more concerned with attire. More concerned with attire than the people. Well, Zach, I mean, wearing a hat or flip-flops in church, is this not reverent? Let me ask you, like, what is the person really violating? Are they violating a command of God? Because actually, if you get to the New Testament, it's mandated for men to wear hats. I don't know about flip-flops, but I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus wore. 
So, so like, really, what's being violated? A command of God? Point to one. Thou shalt not wear flippy flops. No, you're not going to find it in Scripture. So what is that person actually violating if it's not a command of God? They're violating a tradition that Christians developed to ensure reverence. Not God's Word. A tradition. And now what are we not caring for anymore? People. I, I, I could provide all kinds of examples, right? But it's often our traditions that foster a church culture that completely misrepresents the heart of God for the world around us. And finally, when all that happens, when fear, not love, motivating an obedience to earn a favor God wants to give by developing all these type of legalistic traditions to foster moral pride and self-sufficiency, when that happens, you know what's the, the, the main result? And don't miss it. We see it illustrated with these religious leaders. When these things happen, you find yourself opposing Jesus. That's a really dangerous place to be, opposing Jesus. Like what crime had Jesus committed that, that really warranted such persecution? Sure, Jesus was a threat to their power. He undercut their traditions. But the religious leaders, they were so incensed that they wanted to kill him. Why? Because he gave no concern, no regard for their moralism. In their zeal to obey the law of God, these men end up doing what? They attack the Son of God. You see how the, the lunacy of it? We want to obey God, but we're going to attack his son. Like, don't miss the grand warning. Not, not just really of this passage, but it's repeated throughout the gospel narrative. It was religious people whose moral pride was based in their ability to obey God that ultimately opposed Jesus. It wasn't sinners. It wasn't downcast. It wasn't the down and outers. It was religious people whose moralism was based on their performance. It was those people that hated Jesus. It was the people who were so religiously right that they were horribly wrong about everything. You know, how interesting that while in their inability to obey God's Sabbath, it resulted in 70 years of exile. That it then ended up being a dedication to obey God's Sabbath that caused them to miss the entire point of the Sabbath and find themselves ultimately, ultimately destroyed in 70 AD. This is, this is why I go back to where I said it would have been better for the guy to have been a drunk. And carnality, they just didn't obey it. Seven years in exile. And their moralism, they really wanted to obey it and they were destroyed. Why? Because they rejected Jesus. Anytime you oppose grace, you oppose Jesus, and that makes you the enemy of God. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, and we'll close with this thought, but it is worth taking a second and mentioning that aside from the seventh day of creation, you know the Bible does record for us a second Sabbath, a second Sabbath day in which God rested. There's only two the original seventh day and a second. 
As a matter of fact, it's the only time in the gospel narrative that we're given a specific account of Jesus doing nothing on the Sabbath day. Jesus loved doing things on the Sabbath day. But we have one instance where he intentionally did nothing. See, just a little over two years from the story, while the religious world, as they had done for years, ceased from working and their attempts to earn the favor of God, it was on that same Sabbath day that where do we find Jesus? Resting in a garden tomb on the Sabbath. You see, on the cross, Jesus declared what? It is finished. To telestai. The work that God had begun following the fall, when he had to end his rest and initiate a work, it was on the cross of Calvary that Jesus said, it's done. The work is finished. And now I can rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, this is what we're told. For Jesus has spoken of the seventh day this way that God rested from the seventh day from all his works. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered Jesus' rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. Because of the cross, restless man could now, for the first time since the fall, enter back into a relationship with God through a work Jesus accomplished on their behalf. Should there be any surprise, which you never find mentioned in the same context after the resurrection? You've got it. The Sabbath. The Sabbath had no place in the New Testament church. Why? Because it was no longer relevant. What it represented had been fulfilled. For 2,000 or so years, the Jews always worshipped God on Saturday. And yet, from the point of the resurrection moving forward, they never worshipped on Saturday. Instead, it was on Sunday. A new day. Created from a finished work. Let me close with Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 11. Here's the application to all of the theology. Jesus said, All you who labor, You laboring? Laboring to earn God's approval? Laboring to demonstrate your worthiness for God's approval? All you who labor, who are working hard, and who are heavy laden, who are beaten down as a result, who are tired, Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. The Lord of the Sabbath. Take my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. Did you come with burdens today? Jesus says, give them to me. Let me carry them. Let me bear them so you can rest. And then he says, why? Why you should trust him with such a thing? He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, I promise, find rest for your souls. As we close, if any of these truths about Jesus, if any of these things strike a chord within your heart, something that you're willing to surrender to, maybe for the first time, or maybe to surrender again to, Jesus, <laughs> I've been working, and I need to cease and rest. It's your work, not mine. It's your ability, not mine. It's your ableness, not mine. 
yeah, I need to take a perpetual Sabbath and get out of your way because you're good at being God. And me, not so much. I'm actually a terrible God. If any of these things strike a chord, I'd ask that you just pray this prayer.